Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Sherry Quinn. Men want commitment when women are scarce, according to University of Utah anthropologist Ryan Schacht. The sexual stereotype is women want commitment and men want that sometimes, but more. Schott's study of the Makushi in Guyana with co-author Monique Boderhoff Mulder shows it is much more complex. They found men are more likely to seek long-term relationships when women are in short supply. Ryan Schott is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Utah in the Department of Anthropology. He joins us to discuss his recent work. First, he describes his unique upbringing. Through my upbringing, you know, anthropology was the inevitable outcome. I uh, am the son of an academic. My father's a, a grassland ecologist, and we moved quite a bit. We lived in Utah, Texas, Nebraska, and also in Brazil, and in a little country uh, in southern Africa called Lesotho. And so I think these early child experiences of moving around, you know, just, just being surrounded by different cultures um, at you know, various different stages throughout my life really just made me interested in, in understanding the human condition, trying to um, understand and explain and even just catalog uh, the diversity in, in behavior and, and cross-cultural variability we see uh, in people. How did living in Africa as a child influence you later on in life and in your career? The long story is my parents both met in the Peace Corps. Uh, they were in the Central African Republic and so always had a strong desire to return back to Africa. And so when I was about five, we moved to a small country um, called, called Lesotho. It's actually within uh, South Africa. It's uh, nearby Swaziland. People are generally more familiar um, with that. And so this was, I mean, just one of the, oh, I suppose, just most important experiences of my life, particularly because I lived um, in Lesotho during apartheid in South Africa. And so this was a time when you know, as an American family, um, we were exposed to black and white only restaurants and restrooms and um, other types of establishments. And so this was something with, of course, you know, parents from the Peace Corps and also being, um, you know, American. This was something that we, we often talked about um, and, and the problems that we had with this. And I think, you know, this, this really influenced me at a young age just to see how different people were, how different people, uh, how different they, they lived, um, how, how different people's ideologies were, um, and just how, how place, you know, the, the context served just such an important role in, in patterning behavior, the way people think, the way they look, all of those types of things. Living around a lot and being exposed to all these different cultures must have provided a lot of challenges, and did it also influence your perspective in the U.S. and when studying behavior? Yeah, no, definitely. I think this was, you know, one of those things that just, just happens unconsciously. You don't really think about it, um, but later on, as you're looking back and seeing the way you live your life or what you find interesting, you realize that you're, you're intimately shaped by where you come from. And for me, I come from a lot of different places. And so what this meant, <laughs> you know, was that I was a really awkward kid and teenager in some ways when I finally moved back to the U.S. I, I hadn't you know, lived in the U.S. Uh, until I was about nine. Um, and so I was this kid who lived in Brazil and, and Lesotho and was just out of step. <laughs> I didn't know what was cool, what was popular, you know, the types of music or how to dress. And, you know, this took a long time. It took me a long time to get comfortable, uh, to start making friends, to do these types of things. And again, you know, just looking back now as an anthropologist, you know, as someone who studies behavior, is, is realizing that, you know, I was living in these areas, learning how people, you know, lived in those areas, behaving like people did in those areas. 
and then going to a completely different area and finding that I was ill-equipped <laughs> to, uh, you know, to make friends and, and those types of things. And so, no, there was, you know, definite hardship, but at the same time, it was, you know, a, uh, an enriching experience moving, uh, moving so often um, and definitely, you know, leading to what I was interested in. So I uh, went to Guyana. It's a small country in, in South America. It has about three quarters of a million people. Um, but it's about the size uh, of of Idaho, so it's a it's a you know, it's a relatively large uh, country in in, in the uh, you know the in South America, but um, very low population density. And most uh, about ninety percent of the population lives within about uh, ten kilometers, so seven miles or so from from the coast. And what this means is that the interior is is largely uninhabited. Um, there's a few pockets of of uh, you know where you have regional capitals and, and city or smaller smaller villages, but it's an area that's that's largely uninhabited. You know, close to about eighty percent of the rainforest is still primary, and so so just visiting there was just such an amazing experience. Um, and also, you can just see the history of colonization of colonialism just written both you know on the buildings but on the faces of the people that you meet it was initially a dutch colony then british then french then it sort of exchanged back and forth depending on the war that was happening in the oh uh 16th 17th and 18th century um centuries and eventually became um and stayed a british a british colony and so you have um uh, afro-guyanese who were brought over and the the 16th, 17th century, and up, up until the 18th, obviously, um, as, as slaves. And then after emancipation, uh, England looked to its, or Great Britain looked to its, um, another colony it had the, uh, the, in, in India and began in, importing indentured servants from, from India and brought over uh, people from both what are known as India and Pakistan today. And so you also now have a mix of religions. So you have a mix of ethnicities, you have a mix of religions, um, and it was just such a fascinating place to visit that I just realized this is where I, I have to do my research. Can you discuss your current study and how it differs from mainstream ones? Well, and this was, I suppose, challenging some sexual stereotypes, firmly held sexual stereotypes about the nature of men and women or male and female and expectations about, about behavior. A lot of work um, that comes out of the social sciences, uh, psychology in particular, focuses on um, the college undergraduate. So we know a lot of information, quite detailed information about young men and women, 18 to 22, um, you know, of a particular sort of middle to upper middle class uh, background who are predominantly white. Um, so we know a lot about them, but we know very little about the rest of the world. Um, and yet, most of the generalizations about human universals, about what men and women do or how we expect them to behave, those types of things, come from these 18 to 22 year olds. Uh, from, from U.S. universities. And so anthropologists are really interested in, in challenging some of these generalizations about human universals and instead exploring what we see cross-culturally, the variability we see in behavior, and trying to offer explanations for this, this contextual variation. And so in particular with this study, what we were attempting to challenge was this notion that, well, that's held you know, popularly, that men are more interested in short-term, uncommitted relationships. Uh, they're much more interested in being promiscuous than are women. And women really prefer long-term, committed relationships and are, are uh, generally more choosy. And this, this is also supported by uh, biological thought and that women um, invest more in reproduction than do men through gestation, lactation, those types of things. And so it really pays for them to be choosy because if they're not, they're, they're a cost to choosing poorly, for example. 
Whereas men, um, you know, the costs of reproduction are quite low, right? So we could talk about a, a brief uh, a sexual encounter, a bit of sperm, for example, but there's potentially no long-term costs. And so these were the general arguments that there are these, 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 these roots, these biological roots are, that, are, that are driving our behavior and that men um, behave this way and women behave this way. And so that, of course, being an anthropologist um, was something that, that didn't represent what, what I and, and others see cross-culturally. And that, yeah, we do see some societies uh, that are quite in line with these, these simple biological predictions or our popular you know, uh, thoughts of, of what are men and women, and that men have multiple wives, for example. But then you have other cultures that are on the other side, where you have men or women with multiple husbands. And so this doesn't fit well with these simple explanations. And then, of course, you have a lot of cultures where it's right in the middle. You see monogamous, faithful, long-term, committed relationships where both men and women invest in shared offspring. And so... Um, what we were interested in doing was um, challenging some of these sexual stereotypes uh, and taking a mating market approach. And so a mating market approach is thinking about um, behavior being responsive to partner availability. So thinking about the number of men and women in a community or in a population in market terms where economic principles of, of supply and demand hold sway. So if you're rare, you can be more demanding of a partner, you can, you can leverage your rarity, and the sex that's in in abundance, uh, must respond to the sex that's rare. So we just counted people, literally just counted people. And so um, when, when there were fewer men than women, this is when you have a, a male-biased community, meaning that there are just more men, absolutely, than there are women. Um, and when you have more women, this is when you're talking about a female-biased community. So, so men are rarer than are women. How long did it take and how well were you received by these villagers? So this was done over uh, 16 months in the interior of Guyana, um, a little uh, place called the Rupununi. It's Rupununi savannas, which are an extension of the Rio Branco savannas from, from Brazil. And we were working with the indigenous group called the Makushi. Um, and the Makushi were great to work with for this, uh, well, one, because they speak English. <laughs> so it was, it was you know, a great place to get in and, and be able to start, start research quite quickly, although I had been there uh, seven previous times. I've been going to the area since 2006. Um, but this is also an area where due to relatively recent market integration, um, you're seeing a lot of bias in um, um, uh, migration in and out of communities by sex. So in some areas that are closer to Brazil, you generally see more women leaving communities. Women are moving over into Brazil for things like shop work and domestic work. And then areas that are more in the interior, what you're seeing is that men are more likely to leave communities, for example, um, for timber work, mineral extraction, those types of things, ranching. But it's generally only temporary, um, so, so men aren't leaving permanently. But what you get is this nice gradient of variation in sex ratios within a single cultural group, within a single ethnic group. Um, and so we had some communities, for example, where there were 90 men for every 100 women. Um, all the way to communities where there were about 140 men for every 100 women. So they really ranged from being, you know, from having too many women, for example, to other communities having too many men. What were the population sizes and how much did they vary? They ranged quite a bit. On ab you know, the, our average size was about 350, um, but the smallest village was 160 people and the largest was just over 700. How would you translate them to American society or Western societies? If we're thinking about the West or, you know, moving from a small-scale society, because they're a, 
they're they're um, a f- agricultural group. They they focus mostly on cassava, or or also it's known as, as manioc. But they do a fair amount of hunting and fishing as well. But if we want to think for moving from a small scale society to industrialized societies, or even more specifically a Western society like like the U.S., we could think about um, or actually look to what we see are very biased sex ratios across the U.S. So there's a big urban-rural divide. So urban areas generally have more women than men, um, and rural areas generally have more men than women. And this is because women are more likely to leave rural areas and men are more likely to move into them. There's generally more agricultural work or mining or mineral extraction, those types of things. Um, And there is a big east-west divide. So if we look to the eastern states, and in particular the southern states, there are more women. And if we look to the West, these are areas where men are moving to. Um, So if we look to places like Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, Alaska, California, these are states uh, that generally have more men uh, than do women. And so I would say that, you know, this this argument or our findings uh, would apply to the U.S. as well. And there has been a little bit of work that's looked to um, uh, relationship outcomes as a consequence of the sex ratio and consistently found that when there are more men, this is when we see higher rates of marriage, uh, more stable relationships over time, more children or higher higher rates of children born in wedlock, and higher rates of uh, or, or sorry lower rates of female headed households. And so all these measures of, of family stability and uh, relationship commitment by men are higher when there are more men. How do you use these findings, your, these ideas, to predict individual behavior. I guess what I would say is, or at least if I were to take, use this theory and, and speak based on what the predictions are from taking a mating market approach or using mating market theory, is that the preferences and then the responses of an individual are going to be based on the, the number of uh, partners. As a woman, a woman can potentially be much choosier about a relationship, can be more demanding about a partner if partners are abundant, because if men weren't to respond to uh, the demands of a woman, then there's plenty, you know, uh, plenty other fish in the sea, so to speak. However, when uh, men are rare, um, this is now when men can leverage their scarcity and they can have uh, multiple partners uh, because of the extra women that are available. And one example of that is in New York City. Well, so there was a recent article out that just uh, or popular write-up of, of this paper that, that Monique and I uh, had out in the Royal Society, which was at Exo Jane, um, and it was written by Marcy Robin, and it was just a great, you know, it's just a fun little piece, but where she was applying what she read in our paper to um, what it's like living in New York as a woman, and, you know, making the argument that so much makes sense now <laughs> about how it's difficult to... And of course, there are many things that matter. No, and, and Monique and I are never once trying to say that it's all about sex ratio. You know, of course, a lot of things matter. But uh, what, what Marcy was pointing out was, you know, through, through her experiences in New York, is that it's very difficult to find a committed uh, partner or a man who's interested in a long-term commitment. And instead, she finds herself in, in, in these sort of love triangles where either she's the partner of a man who is stepping out on her, or she is that woman who is stepping out with that man on his other partner. And a lot of this just happens incidentally because uh, she's not sure what, what, men, what men are doing. And she uh, talks about a friend in Alaska 
who is a, a woman who is telling her to move to Alaska. You will really enjoy it. The dating, uh, the dating market is great here. And part of that argument is in line, or part of what they are experiencing is in line with these mating market predictions that in New York, there's a lot of extra women. Um, in, in Alaska, there's a lot of extra men. Um, and so the number of men and women influences both men's and women's relationship preferences or what they're willing uh, to, to forego or what they're going to be demanding about um, in, in a partner. And, you know, men often complain or you hear about those things that it's, you know, why don't they ever go for the good guys or, you know, those types of things. And, you know, it'd be interesting to look at some of these complaints and how they're patterned by partner availability. <laughs> As predicted, they found men were very sensitive to the sex ratio. The women, however, surprised them. So when women were rare, this is when men were ready to commit. They wanted long-term committed relationships. And, you know, this was quite counter to a very simple you know, a simple biological, you know, expectation of behavior. But what did surprise us was that women um, didn't seem to be responsive to the sex ratio. And so in some ways we expected women to, you know, either be more interested in having multiple partners when men were abundant. So in a way, uh, be more interested in, in dissolving a relationship um, if a man wasn't investing in going for another, or potentially responding to the rarity or, or uh, shortage of men by being willing to take or, or, or to have multiple partners. But we didn't find that. Um, and, and so, you know, initially it was quite surprising, but I think there are really two explanations to this. And one is that the family, and I suppose, you know, to have a successful household, it's very important to get investment from both a mother and a father. And this is because women generally do most of the food production and processing, so it's mostly you know, meeting the, the, the needs of the family on a day-to-day -day basis, whereas the men will do uh, more of the protein collecting, so they'll do more hunting and fishing. So, so in some ways, women may be attempting to signal their, their faithfulness or their, their, their fidelity uh, to a partner by not taking multiple partners in order to secure an investing, an investing partner. But, you know, secondly for me is that, for the Makushi, is that women have a lot of power within, within the household. They have power in terms of economic decision-making, household decision-making, those types of things. And that's because the Makushi are, are matrilineal and matrilocal, meaning that kinship is reckoned through uh, the female line. And at marriage, a groom moves in with the bride's family. And so what it is, it's a group of related women, grandma, mom, aunts, nieces, cousins, who are working together to meet the family's calorie needs, you know, to meet their subsistence needs. And men are marrying into these, into these families. And so what you see is that, that the network and the relationships between women are very important. And so if a woman were to take multiple partners, there's the potential that she would be sleeping with family members or a friend's uh, husband. And so this would potentially jeopardize her uh, social network and her ability to meet household uh, production, production needs. But interestingly, married men in communities with more women were much more like single men in communities with more men. So in the end, it, was, it wasn't just about relationship status, it was really about uh, partner availability. So when men had or were in communities with more women, this is when they were more interested in short-term, uncommitted relationships. Why the focus in surveys on 18 to 22-year-olds, and how does that change across cultures? The general focus 
um, on the 18 to 22 year olds is, you know, about, about relationship preferences and asking them in the context of, of a sort of anonymous individual or a hypothetical situation or presenting them with a face and asking people about, you know, what are your short-term versus long-term preferences? Would you, do you like, or would you, uh, are you comfortable with, with one night stands? Uh, these types of things. And, you know, we're, we're asking people about relationship preferences where, you know, as a, as a college student, you're likely going to see a lot of faces every day. And a lot of those faces are people you may never see again. And so you're having people um, engaging in environments that are very different than where I worked in with the Makushi. Um, and I remember asking men this question and having a lot of men just look at me strangely when I asked them about how many one-night stands they've had, because this is uh, one of the, the questions about, you know, trying to get at the relationship preferences. And, you know, one man in particular looked at me and was just confused, and so I tried to explain it a couple different ways. Imagine that there is a, a village party and there are several villages participating, and there's someone, a uh, woman that you hadn't seen before, um, and you slept together, but you didn't see her again. And, you know, all of a sudden it dawned on him what I was saying, and he looked at me with, you know, this kind of mix of surprise and disgust and said, why would I ever sleep with someone once and only once? And, you know, it just really stood out to me that it, the motivations, you know, behind our relationships are so different in different places. And there is a very different motivation down there for relationships. Men and women want to get married. Marriage is an important stepping stone in, in terms of becoming an adult and getting the rights and responsibilities associated with, with being adult. So it's important for both men and women to get married because if men don't get married, then they don't have the respect at the community level or within the sphere of, of other men in the community because they're not, a, they're, they're not a husband, they're not going to be a father potentially. So these are things that are really driving uh, relationship preferences. Whereas, you know, if we're talking about 18 to 22 year olds, I mean, this is we are all, you know, or those of us who've been to college or, or who know sort of the more popular expectations, this is a time of exploration, you know, both of exploration academically, but also in some ways, you know, sexually or in terms of relationships. And so, so we shouldn't expect relationship preferences to be the same everywhere. Um, and so, so for me, that just really stood out. It's like, wow, you know, I mean, you know, this is just, you know, as an anthropologist, it even was a wow moment for me. It was like context and culture matter so much to these types of things. And so it just really, for me, just further challenges a lot of these generalizations that come out of, uh, about human universals that come out of studies from Western populations, in particular from college kids. So we know a lot about 18 to 22 year olds, but we don't know anything about people in their 30s and 40s in the US. You know, what's driving their relationship preferences? Your study then challenges their traditional way of looking at these behaviors and, and how they're studied. How do you find sex ratios affect other behaviors and aspects in society? Yeah, so this study has, I think, in many ways just opened up a lot of possibilities in terms of uh, research. I recently presented a paper, um, and again, this was with, with Monique Borgroff-Mulder, who's the co-author, and also Kristen Rauch, who is uh, a postdoc, uh, postdoctoral researcher at, at UC Davis um, in, in the anthropology department, where we were applying these mating market ideas to trying to understand violence and, and in particular understanding patterning of violence against women. Um, and so what we're consistently seeing in, in a review of the literature looking at, at everything that's been published is that when there are more men in communities or in populations, we generally see, like I was saying earlier, um, more stable relationships over time, 
greater male investment in children, all of these types of things, which are counter to a lot of our popular concerns about more men leading to more social instability and things. And so we wanted to explore violence uh, more, more closely. And so what we did was look to, uh, in particular, uh, a sexual assault against women, so looking to rape. And we were also looking at, at male-male homicide. And what we found in both cases, for both of those, both of those uh, crimes, that when there were more men in a community, that rates of, of rape and rates of homicide were lower. And rates of rape and homicide were actually highest when there were more women. And so this is the direction currently we're going in, is, is to see how these mating market approaches, you know, apply to the West, apply to, to the U.S., and to, to some of these really big questions about sexual assault, um, about homicide, about understanding violence, and, and hoping they can shed some light. And of course, it's one of many things that matter. Um, but we are getting some purchase here and that um, it, there does seem to be some, some, some patterning that we are picking up and so we're, we're looking into that in, in more detail at the moment. That was anthropologist Ryan Schacht. Stay tuned for Science Questions up next with Temple Grandin. Sherry Quinn for Access Utah. Support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible in part by our members and Uinta Basin Healthcare in Roosevelt, founded in 1944, celebrating over 70 years of service, offering hospital, clinic, and pharmacy services. Details at ubh.org. After 20 years, Happy Hour has returned to the state of Illinois. Just doing a special during Monday Night Football, something you couldn't do. Even giving away a drink during halftime when you have, a, say, a bad football game. I'm Molly Wood. A look at what effects the reinstated happy hour will have on the state of Illinois. On the next Marketplace from 8 p.m. Join us tonight at 7 on Utah Public Radio. I'm really glad the AMI is producing this video so you can see how a big plant works when everything is operating correctly. I have worked all my career on improving how animals are handled. And one of my biggest frustrations is you go out there on the internet and there's all these terrible undercover videos and there's not much video of things being done right. Now one of the problems- Welcome to Science Questions. This is Sherry is Quinn. Is and I am Susie Montgomery. Temple Grandin thinks in pictures. She's a professor of animal science at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, and is well known for her inventive livestock handling designs. She used her notoriety to dispel the negative labels of autism that plagued her as a child and a young woman. One of the things that really motivated me was I wanted to prove to the world I wasn't stupid. Sherry first met Miss Grandin at her home in 2011 and interviewed her about her career and her moral beliefs that set her apart from other scientists and big names. Here's a clip from that profile piece. I am literally on the edge of my seat, on Temple Grandin's brown cowhide couch next to her. 
There are stacks of papers, books, and science and business journals scattered everywhere in her living room. In her modest two-story condo near the University of Colorado in Fort Collins, the walls are collaged with paintings and photographs of cattle, horses, and Western art, and tables are piled high with animal sculptures, stuffed animals, and knickknacks, all gifts from her family, friends, and adoring fans from across the world. I've been kind of following a lot of this stuff, science and nature. We're sitting here doing this interview, and i got so many science and natures on the couch, so there's no place to sit. Grandin is a prolific writer and has written numerous popular books about animal behavior. She has published over 100 scientific and technical articles on livestock handling. Early on in her career, it was her mission to make slaughterhouses more humane, and she has become a world leader in the design of livestock handling facilities. Her curved chute system is used worldwide, and her writings on the principles of grazing animal behavior have helped many livestock producers reduce stress in cows and pigs during handling. Grandin's philosophy, the world is cruel, but we don't have to be, has caught on and even fast food corporations, such as McDonald's, Wendy's, and Burger King, have begun to implement her animal welfare guidelines at their slaughterhouses. Her close friend Rosalie Winard recalls the first time she visited a slaughterhouse with Grandin. I was there to photograph, and I was allowed to photograph outside the actual slaughter itself, because they never allow that. And after we toured the whole plant and the stairway to heaven, Temple asked if I wanted to go in to see the actual slaughter, because this is something that she's very, very proud of, because she really has created a painless slaughter for the animals. And we went inside, and there were actually, there were two other women who were from the biosphere, and we witnessed it, and it was quick and painless. And then we went outside back on the, the ramp, and much to my amazement and and very touching, we got out on the ramp, and she said, could we have a minute of silence for the cows now? And it was just this unexpected, beautiful, touching moment. And it, it is how Temple relates to the cows and all the animals she works with. Ms. Grandin is currently traveling the country promoting her new book, The Autistic Brain, co-authored by Richard Panic. It is currently on the New York Review of Books bestseller list. Sherry talked to her on the phone about her new book right before she left for an autism meeting in Australia. Grandin first discussed the main difference between the autistic and the non-autistic brains, where the circuits involved with social relationships, like facial recognition, are abnormal. Recognizing emotional expressions, those sorts of things, in the people that are fully verbal, that's one abnormality that seems to go across the spectrum. Now you get into other things like sensory problems, visual thinking, mathematical thinking, word thinking. Those things are highly, highly variable. But when you look at um, individuals on the autistic spectrum that are fully verbal, they tend to have uneven skills. They tend to be good at one thing and really bad at something else. And that's one of the things I talk about in the autistic brain. The right side of Grandin's brain dominates. When she was 63, her brain was scanned and analyzed by a team of neuroimaging experts, including researchers from the University of Utah. One of the results revealed an abnormally large amygdala, a deep region of the brain that processes emotion. Then you start looking at things like I've got asymmetry in the uh, fluid-filled ventricles. Well, that kind of wrecked my math department. And then I've got a huge, my language circuit morphed into a huge visual circuit that most other people don't have. 
You see, what's happening is the new technologies are coming in for scanning that were developed uh, for the Defense Department for head injuries and veterans. It's sort of like getting the Hubble Space Telescope, but nobody really knows how to use it yet. And some of those images that are in the autistic brain are sort of like, you know, the first little looks with the new technology. And what needs to be done is uh, looking at different types of autism and then seeing how these circuits are, are different. You know, the circuit in my brain for speak what you see had less bandwidth, and that may explain why I had problems with getting my speech out, getting my words out. I had difficulty with that. Grandin, once terrified of public speaking, looks like a natural on stage. She overcame her fear with practice. Practice, 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 because when I was in graduate school, my very first talk, I panicked and I walked out. It's just practice, practice, just doing it. And then I'd read my evaluations carefully, and, and um, I remember one time a student wrote on one of my evaluations. I always gave the same lecture, because even though I didn't always give the same lecture, I tended to start all my cattle lectures with the same slide on cattle vision. Well, I got rid of that slide, and then I started um, mixing my slides around in different order. And that got rid of that problem. Can you discuss why there are so many forms of autism on the spectrum? Well, the problem is, is diagnosis is a behavioral profile. It is not precise, like going out and doing a lab test for tuberculosis. It's not a precise diagnosis. In fact, over the decades, uh, the American Psychiatric Association has kept changing the diagnosis. And in the autistic brain, I have an entire chapter just on how the diagnosis has changed. You see, it's a, it's a behavioral profile consisting of a cluster of symptoms. And it's very important that parents and teachers not get hung up on these diagnostic labels. You know, if your kid's labeled dyslexia, ADHD, you know, um, oppositional defiant, conduct disorder, you know, any one of these um, DSM labels, don't get hung up on it. They are not precise. Autism diagnoses are on the rise. About 1 in 88 children has been diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. And Utah has the highest rate in the country, according to estimates from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Grandin said some of the rise is attributable to increased detection back in 1980, because in order to be diagnosed with it, you had to have speech delay. In other words, you had to have speech delay before 30 months of age. Then in the early 90s, they added Asperger's, which is basically the social awkwardness. You know, and there's no speech delay, so that's going to broaden it right there a whole lot. And then the new DSM is taking out the Asperger's, and they're going to rename that social communication disorder. And because uh, I think this has to do with politics and, you know, making services. Grandin added there is some upset about the new classifications among some individuals with Asperger's. Half of Silicon Valley's got some Asperger's, but most of them are undiagnosed. The ones that are diagnosed uh, kind of, you know, feel a camaraderie. And uh, there's a lot of concern about, you know, loss of services. See, part of the reason for using all these labels is you have to have them to get services. Like if your child needs to get special ed in school, you've got to have a label. If you don't have a label, you're not going to get um, any services. What is the most exciting research these days? The research I think they need to do that absolutely needs to be done. Be done. They've done a lot of research on the social circuits. We know how, the, how those don't work. And there's old FMRI, fMRI technology that could actually diagnose that that's not even being used. But what needs to be worked on are the sensory problems because you have some people that can't stand fluorescent lights, and they're not all diagnosed autistic either. Some of them are diagnosed sensory processing problems. Some are diagnosed with dyslexia. Some are just diagnosed with learning problems. And uh, there's some individuals can't tolerate the flicker of fluorescent lights. It drives them absolutely crazy. 
Uh, others can't tolerate loud noises. I was at a meeting just yesterday. There was a little boy that had on those kind of headphones he wear out at the airport, you know, to protect from the jet blast because he um, just couldn't stand normal noise. And we need to find treatments for these sensory issues. But they're very, very variable. One kid may be bothered by smoke alarm or, you know, loud noises like that. Other kid doesn't bother him. There is no single cause of autism. Several culprits are suspected. It is clear genetics influence the risk for developing autism. However, genetics does not account for all cases. Toxins in our environment, like prenatal exposure to the chemicals, thalidomide and valproic acid, has been linked to increased risk of autism. And new studies are providing evidence that in some cases, the development of autism stems from epigenetic sources. Problems in the control of gene expression in brain cells, for example. There's also some research showing that low folic acid and taking folic acid, you know, right around, you know, conception can help reduce autism and other neurological problems. You know, we're going to diet in this country is deficient in omega-3s and, and it could be a number of things. So genetics is complicated. There's lots of little tiny code variations that involved in the genetics. Do you think there could be an evolutionary advantage to autism? Mild forms, there's some advantages. I mean, who do you think made the first stone spear? It wasn't the, um, the yak-yaks around the campfire, that's for sure. You see, a little bit of these traits gives some advantage. You wouldn't want to totally get rid of these traits. Um, uh, you know, the people with, uh, you know, that are to take out some social circuits, then you seem to have more circuits for, like, figuring out stuff, like programming computers and doing art and things like that. And, and so a little bit of the trait gives some advantages. What are some technologies that you think help autistics? One thing I'm seeing too many kids doing is getting totally addicted to video games. They're not doing anything else. They're not working for the video game industry or learning programming. And any cognitive advantages you can get from video games, you're going to get 30 minutes to one hour a day, and that's what the research shows. You know, I'm very concerned that there's too many smart, geeky kids out there that are not getting their abilities developed. I mean, when I was a young child, my ability in art was really, really encouraged. But I'm seeing too many cases where I see a smart kid that needs to be doing advanced math when he's in the third grade, and they won't let him do it. And that's just absolutely terrible. And then the kid gets bored and turns into a behavior problem. See, one of the problems you have is autism is such a big spectrum. You know, teachers have a hard time shifting gears from the half of the, of the population that remains nonverbal and very severely handicapped to a kid that's just socially awkward and maybe brilliant in math but may, may need special ed and reading, or one like me that's hopeless in algebra, but really good with uh, art type of stuff and industrial design types of things. Another big concern I've got, is, especially with some of these milder autistic kids, they need to learn work skills. You know, like how to just get out there every day and do a job. And if there were paper routes still around, I'd put them on a paper route. You know, or, or they could walk dogs for people. My mother arranged a little sewing job for me that I did two afternoons a week. Grandin was raised with a strong work ethic that helped her get through the onslaught of criticisms from her peers and adults for simply being herself. When I was a young kid, I was labeled as mentally retarded, too. One of the things that really motivated me was I wanted to prove to the world I wasn't stupid. And I can remember when I got some of my really nice drawings done, I looked at these drawings and I go, well, I can't be too stupid and then draw this and then see the project get built and have it work. That determination continues in her livestock work today. Next, Grandin discusses her latest agricultural research. We've been um, 
uh, working on a lot of different things. My student just worked on a project where we went out to feed yard and watched cattle um, going through the squeeze chute. And sometimes um, you miscatch, you make a mistake, and catch the animal's head wrong in the squeeze chute, and you're working them. And that definitely, you know, is um, causing some discomfort to the cattle. I mean, that's something you just would know. And I want to make it very clear, we did not deliberately uh, miscatch any cattle. We just watched, you know, hundreds and hundreds of cattle go through a squeeze chute, and then sometimes they make a mistake and miscatch one of them. And we found that if he did that, they would tend to moo more. I've done research where I developed vocalization scoring for use in slaughterhouses. And if you want to pass the McDonald's audit, you're only allowed to have three cattle out of 100 mooing when you're handling them. And if you've got more than three out of 100 mooing, then you've got problems. You know, and the mooing is associated with something aversive. And if you make a mistake when you're working the cattle, and instead of catching them around the neck with the head gate, maybe get them across the jaw with it, you know, they're going to moo more. And my student just worked on quantifying that. And, and I went to a very good feed yard, and every once in a while they would happen to make a mistake. We recorded how the cattle behaved in that situation as compared to one was done absolutely right. And what it showed is you want to do it absolutely right as much as possible. She said one of the biggest changes in the industry is in maintenance and management. You know, a lot of slaughterhouses, you don't have to build a lot of new stuff to fix them. You've got to fix a lot of simple things like non-slip floor in the stun box, uh, get rid of reflections. Um, animals are afraid of a little, lot of little distractions that we tend to not see, like reflections on shiny metal, stuff like that, sunbeams, seeing people walk by. And if you get rid of the distractions, they'll walk right in. And then you also have got to have management that cares about doing things right. And I worked with McDonald's and other companies on implementing their animal welfare auditing. And then another program I worked on was uh, video auditing, where video cameras are used, where people over the Internet look in and see what's going on. Boy, 20 years ago, they were really awful. And things have improved a lot. You might want to look at my beef plant video tour with Temple Brandon. And I also have pork plants video tour with Temple Grandin. And you can see exactly how the things work when they're working right. Cattle are offloaded as calmly as possible to minimize excitement and prevent slips and falls. If an animal falls down, it can get bruised, it can get injured. Non-slip flooring is essential to prevent uh, slips and falls. How many slaughterhouses are taking on these new Cattle practices? Ironically, most of the big plants are doing it. So there was a while where the big plants actually were better. Now the small plants that are audited by, you know, companies like Whole Foods and things like that, they're doing a much better job. And there was a lot of problems where people just didn't know. The other thing is you've got to have management that cares about doing things right. And if you don't have management that cares about doing things right, you're going to have bad stuff going on. And one of the things we learned is there were some managers that actually had to be removed. There were some people that had to be removed. And in the big corporations, that's actually easier to do than in some of the smaller places. To understand the animals and learn what works best for them, Grandin spends time with them in the field. You just sit down on the ground, they'll just come up to you. See, the thing is, new things are both frightening and attractive. They're frightening if you take them and just shove them in the animal's face. But if you just sit still and let the animal approach something new, both horses and cattle will come up to strange things. Like if you put a, you know, just park a car out in the middle of the pasture... All the animals will come up to it. Animal behavior and the biology of their memory is mystifying. Just think of butterflies. Grandin is credited for providing insight to these mysteries. She says animals are very specific in how they remember things. And In my book, Animals in Translation, 
I talk about, you know, visual fear memories. You know, as a horse and animals translation, he's terrified of black cowboy hats. White hats are fine, but black cowboy hats are bad because when an idiot threw alcohol in his eyes, he was looking right at a black hat. And then Betsy, my agent, has got a little dog that's terrified of baseball hats. And if you've got a baseball hat on, the dog's terrified of it. You see, because something bad happens to that dog when, uh, when someone was wearing a baseball hat. And that's what the dog was looking at when the bad thing happened. So they tend to get very sensory-specific fear memories, you know, where a, a certain sound or a certain visual image is associated with something bad. To some, Grandin is considered a savant and a voice of reason. She offers thoughtful perspectives on an assortment of major issues, from politics and business to technology and education. Innovation in engineering gets her really excited. And she says getting children with autism interested in specialized projects can be a key to their success. Well, I think 3D printing is really super exciting, and that's a great thing to get kids that are technically inclined involved with having draw stuff and then make it on 3D printers. And they're coming down in price where you can actually get a 3D printer kit now for about $700. And, you know, we need to be getting a lot of these kids that are kind of different into things like maker community groups and hacker space where they get to do cool stuff with things like 3D printers. Because the only places where I was not teased was – was when I was doing specialized interests, like horseback riding and electronics. And we need to be, you know, these kids that are kind of different. I don't care what their label is. We need to get them involved with things where they can excel um, and, and where they have shared interests with their peers. I mean, it could be the school play, the school newspaper, band, music, art, computer programming. It could be a lot of different things. You know, you've got to dream. You know, when we were all kids, we worshipped the astronauts and the, you know, back when I was, you know, when I was a child, uh, you know, the astronauts were our heroes because they were doing, you know, exciting exploration. She says schools are not doing enough to foster children's specialized talents. And an example in Utah sticks out. I've heard really stupid things. When I was in Utah, I heard something really dumb where there was a really smart boy who was brilliant in math and he was one credit off and couldn't get an advanced placement because he had to take special ed course in reading and then not let them take advanced placement science. Math is just bureaucratic stupidity. And that happened last year in Utah. Helping others and seeing real results are major motivating factors for Grandin to work so hard. Kids come up to me telling me that I've really motivated them to succeed. You know, I have a parent tell me that kid went to college because of my book, or a rancher tells me the corral system worked well. That's the sort of things that motivate me. we got to make real positive change happen in the world. You know, and also I'm not abstract. What can we do to do sensible, real stuff that's going to work? And I'm seeing too many smart kids that are kind of quirky and different and they get labeled, and um, they, they sort of almost become their handicap. I mean, autism is an important part of who I am, but it's secondary to a lot of my other work. And I think it's difficult lots of times for teachers to shift gears between a smart science nerd and I'm seeing them getting held back and not allowed to do the advanced math they should be doing. And, and then you've got another population that's much more handicapped and nonverbal, and they're all called autism. See, they're all called the same thing. You know, people being language-based sort of get locked into this. And I, I just see the kid. Parents say, well, well, what's the most important thing you can do for autism? Well, if he's three and he's not talking, it's tons and tons of early intervention, one-to-one teaching. That's the same for everybody. But let's say you've got a 10-year-old who's getting bullied in school, 
you know, I asked, well, what's he good at doing? You know, is, is, he, is he just working at grade level and everything? Is he really excel in one subject? You know, um, i got to ask a lot of questions to find out stuff about him. People tend to oversimplify and we'll put all the autism in one basket. Well, that just doesn't work, you know, the, once they get past the age of two or three or four. It just, it just doesn't work. And, I'm, you know, I was just at a meeting last night, and it was a smart little third grader, and they're making him do baby math over and over and over again. And I said, that is worth wrong. Get the fourth-grade math book and let him do it. Get him the fifth-grade math book. Math's a subject where you just let him go ahead. Now, he's probably, I wouldn't recommend that for literature, but math's a subject where you can just let them go ahead. If he wants to do college math on a laptop in the third-grade classroom, fine. Let him do it. You know, too many of these kids, they aren't learning basic skills like shopping. How do you walk up to somebody at McDonald's and order a hamburger? Work skills. They aren't learning those things. And, and then my science teacher was a very important mentor in high school because I didn't do much studying when I was in high school. I learned a lot of work skills. But uh, he got me interested in science. And, you know, we need to be – there's a lot of retirees around that are probably bored. And maybe they could introduce a, a kid to auto mechanics or art or, or even uh, – programming, and it doesn't matter if it's ancient history, because what you're doing is you're turning the spark on. You're getting the spark turned on. You're getting the kid motivated. But if the kids aren't exposed to these things, they're not going to get interested in 3D printers if they don't know about them. The kids have got to find out that this stuff even exists. Exposure and hands-on experience can make the difference, according to Grandin. The government's gotten too abstract. I'm a bipartisan trasher of this. You're getting everything become an abstraction. And I think a lot of this gets back to taking out the hands-on classes. you got people making policy. They get through college. They get a degree in poli-sci. Then they go internship for a congressman. Then they work in D.C. And they've never been out in the field finding out what happens out in the field with whatever thing they're politicking about. We've got to get back to doing what I call real stuff. Grandin is considered a leading voice in animal behavior and the humane slaughter of livestock. Her dedication to the science of autism and our societal views of it have changed and influenced many lives. She's always on the move across the country, giving talks, signing books, doing research, writing articles and books, mentoring colleagues, parents, youth, and students. She's busy. It seems one of the only times she gets to relax is when she is flying on an airplane like one of her many heroes, the astronauts. She can sit back and watch. I get to see quite a few movies on airplanes. Uh, when I can't sleep on a plane, I'll sometimes watch three movies. Well, I just saw the new Star Trek movie, and of course I always relate to Mr. Spock, because he's very logical, and I like the way he was depicted in the new Star Trek movie. Very, very good to talk to you. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through the 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. An in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation. Featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at shiftjh.org. This is Brian Erickson and bringing more to life. Parents forget... High blood pressure, poor sleep, and medicine can slow a brain down. Purpose in life, social networks, stimulating activities, 
These help protect aging brains. Rather than worry about memory lapse, direct your energy toward mental exercises, physical activity, and maintaining a social life. Ask your parents how they spend their time and encourage change. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll take you to concert halls, clubs, and festivals around the world to catch live music by some of our favorite international stars. From Zimbabwe's Oliver Mitukudzi to Mexico's Julieta Venegas. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for World Music Live, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Tonight at 10, here on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thank you for listening to Access Utah. Today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. The time now is 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for Zorba Pastor on your health coming up next, followed by performance today at 11 o'clock.